Therefore, the scripture says, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, new things have come. J.B. Phillips put it like this. For if a man is in Christ, he becomes a new person altogether. The past is finished and gone. Everything has become fresh and new. The Living Bible says it like this. When someone becomes a Christian, he becomes a brand new person inside. He's not the same anymore. New life has begun. No matter what translation and version you use, the truth is very evident. When anyone becomes a disciple of Jesus and is ambushed by his truth, radical changes take place. I know it. You know it. We've all seen it. It's happened to me. Hopefully it's happened to you, to many of our friends and countless others. But often I'll be blindsided by that truth again and again and sit in astonishment and wonder of God's grace. And such was the case some years ago when I read a letter reprinted in Focus on the Family's newsletter from a young California mother by the name of Colleen Hackett. Hold on to your seat. Dear Dr. Dobson, remember this was a while ago, so Dr. Dobson was still leading Focus on the Family. I listened to your radio broadcast yesterday as you spoke about abortion versus pro-life and how the politicians feel about taking a stand on the issue. Please let me relay the following story to you. In 1991, my beautiful three-and-a-half-year-old daughter was accidentally shot in the head and killed by the eight-year-old boy next door. Needless to say, my life came to a screeching halt. My daughter lay dead in my front yard and my five-year-old son had witnessed the whole thing. My life went from normal and routine and beautiful to a complete and utter mess filled with psychiatrists for both my son and myself near divorce over the next couple of years due to the stress and thoughts of suicide for myself as well as plotting and planning how I would kill not only the little boy who shot my daughter but also the entire family. I felt justified. I felt that I should do it. Well, it's been almost four years now And I never did harm the family next door, nor did I harm myself. Instead, I got down on my knees and my hands and knees after trying to make it on my own, and I asked Jesus into my heart. I told him I wasn't the super mom, super wife, super human being that I thought that I was. I couldn't do it on my own anymore. Once I prayed that prayer, Jesus started to work in my life. He's still there so powerfully in that I can almost feel his breath sometimes. He's that close to me. I had my tubes tied after my daughter's birth in 1987, and in 1992, I went into surgery to have my tubes untied. After several procedures that didn't work, I turned to in vitro fertilization. I was 39 years old when they did the embryo transplant, my egg and my husband's sperm, and implanted five eggs Three of them adhered to the uterine wall, and it was confirmed I was pregnant with triplets. I can't explain to you how overjoyed I was, not to mention my husband, my family, and nearly the whole community where we lived as they were all praying for me. Two minutes after the doctor showed us on ultrasound the three separate sacks containing our future children, he turned on the light in his office, he told me to sit up, and he said these words. Colleen, you'll be 40 years old when you deliver. I suggest that you seriously consider 
selective reduction. He said it calmly as if I, he thought I ought to purchase a Honda car. He was talking about killing one of our children. He knew the pain we had been through losing our daughter and we're still going through. He knew that we were financially able to support three more children. He knew I was in excellent health and had no problems in the past pregnancies. And yet he stood before me and continued to say, it's really simple. We just abort the child that is most easily accessible. That would be baby A. Unquote. I said, no, that's it. Don't talk to me anymore about that. God has given me three babies, and I'm keeping those babies. Right after that doctor's appointment, my husband and I got back into the car and discussed our blessings from God. We agreed in no way were we going to tamper with things. We'd come so far in our faith since Heather left us. Well, that evening, we drove up to the church and met our pastor and his wife, and we told him of our good news, and then felt the need to discuss with our trusted pastor what the doctor said about selective reduction. The pastor simply said, well, do it. If the doctor thinks it would be best, then you should do it. I think that was the last time during my pregnancy that I spoke with either of them. Every time I would think of what they had said, my stomach would become sick. The pastor had been at our house within hours of Heather's death. He saw firsthand the pain and the agony we were going through. He heard our screams of disbelief. He heard me pleading with the Lord to make it all a bad dream. How could he say this after all we had been through? Well, I spent my 40th birthday and the next three months after that in bed, drinking two gallons of water every single day. And on June 11th, 1994, which was the anniversary of when we buried my precious daughter and said goodbye to her for the last time, I gave birth to three absolutely beautiful, perfect boys. Their their birth weights were an astonishing 6 pounds, 14 ounces, 6 pounds, 6 ounces, and 5 pounds, 8 ounces. They never required intensive care. They came home with me in two days and haven't been sick since they were born nine months ago. Baby A is our son, Shawn Michael. He's gorgeous and full of life. Every time I hold him in my arms, I think that he would have been the one who was most easily accessible. He's the one we would have lost had I not stood firm on my convictions. Oh, yes, one more thing. I mentioned that God is working so powerfully in my life. Let me just end this letter by telling you that the people next door, the parents of the little boy that killed my little girl, are now the godparents of Sean Michael. Tell me God isn't alive and working in my life. I could write a book on how powerfully he's speaking to me. Three days before little Heather died, she told me that, quote, Jesus is painting a picture of me and he isn't finished yet. I would write how she came up to me, kissed me on the lips, and said, I love you, Mommy. And 15 seconds later, I picked up her lifeless body. I would write how I found her one day kneeling beside her bed with a cross in her hand and how I took her picture. I have so much to tell. But I must end now because my three little ones are all in their cribs calling Mama, Mama, and it's music to my ears. God's blessing, Colleen J. Hackett. Now, 
There may be more than a hundred sermons in that letter. You may be asking yourself, now what on earth does this have to do with a study on becoming a contagious Christian? Well, I can tell you in one word, transformation. This letter is not just another pro-life argument. This letter is a flourishing garden yielding the abundant fruit of all that is involved when a person becomes a disciple of Christ. Jesus' fingerprints are all over this woman's spirit. And couched between the lines of that letter and within the beatings of that woman's heart are things like supernatural forgiveness, unconditional love, a commitment to spiritual truth, relational acceptance, emotional healing, personal sacrifice, humility, submission, honor, trust, unity, and an amazing wealth of grace. There's a glaring lack of vengeance, resentment, hate, bitterness, intolerance, and indifference. That is what being a true Christian is about. It's the transformation that takes place when the power of Jesus' truth meets the weakness of our humanity. When the truth of Jesus prevails, my friends, our lives are transformed. And the reason I shared this letter with you is to reemphasize the fact that this kind of radical reversal didn't just happen in the first century, but it still happens in the 21st century. I mean, Phil Camille's message a couple of weeks ago was a blazing testimony to that. In the messages just prior to Phil's story, we zeroed in on the extremely important process of helping people cross over the line of non-belief to faith in Jesus and the transformation that takes place when that happens. The exhilaration of being part of someone's journey to salvation is so overwhelming that we want to do it more and we want to do it better with increasing intensity. The love of Christ compels us to the point that nothing matters more than bringing people into a personal encounter with Christ to the glory of God. Amen? That's good. That's the motivation behind the whole series that I'm ending today. It's to make you want to be contagious. However, it is at this point that I need to pause and as a means of precaution, give a little preventative counsel. It's our desire for spreading the good news. If it isn't tempered by the guidance of the Holy Spirit, can become seriously, seriously flawed. Subtly, but all too frequently, the cause of Christ suffers violence at the hands of misguided and misused zeal to the point where people actually become counterproductive to what Christ wants to do. My intent this morning is to hopefully alert us to the dangers of forgetting Christ in the midst of preaching him. Because we can do that. You might think, how can that happen? Well, it can. It does. And it happened to a couple of Jesus' closest companions. When we operate in our own strength, rather than in the power of the Holy Spirit, we unwittingly short-circuit the intent of Jesus' great commission. There are no two better examples of that than the sons of thunder. James and John, the sons of Zebedee. 
The meaning of their name alone speaks volumes about these two zealous and aggressive fishermen who were probably just as brash, just as passionate as Peter ever was. And a couple of selected events in their initial attempts to minister for Christ highlight some things that we need to take to heart. So if there's one thing that I've learned as I've studied the lives of these men, it is that our mental picture of them may be far different than what they actually were. Okay? James and John, like Colleen Hackett, had some major transformations to undergo at the hand of Jesus before they were ready to be used by Jesus. And all of us do. Some of them are painful transformations. All of them have purpose, however. Jesus wants to hone and refine every single one of his followers into the sharpest and most useful tool that they can be. The big question is, are we aware of the areas that God wants to change us in order for us to become as contagious as we can be? Are we aware of those areas? Now, although there is limited information on the metamorphosis that these two brothers, James and John, had to endure, a few stand out considerably, and in them I find at least four key areas that every disciple of Jesus needs to address if they're going to become contagious Christians, okay? So track with me now. First of all, we must monitor our approach. And here's the principle. Zeal must be tempered by sensitivity. Zeal must be tempered by sensitivity. Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 9. We're going to look at a few verses there to start with. Now, we don't find much in the Scripture about James. Specific incidents are scarce. Someone has said that James appears more as a silhouette than a photograph. But the dim appearances that we have are quite eye-opening, actually. The very first time we hear James speak, his mind is in a fit of anger. And we get a glimpse of the brashness that James may have possessed. Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 51. Follow along with me. When the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead of him, and they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. But they did not receive him because he was traveling toward Jerusalem. Now, when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them and said, you do not know what kind of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went on to another village. Right on the heels of the privilege of seeing Jesus Christ transfigured before their eyes, if you look at the greater context, you find out that they had just come down off the mountain where Jesus was transfigured before their very eyes, we find James and John ready to wipe out the world in defense of Christ. Now, we don't real readily picture James, especially uh, not John, as hot-headed zealots, do we? I mean, if you think about it, Jesus didn't call James and John the son, sons of thunder for nothing, right? They were probably boisterous and passionate and aggressive men. No doubt James' respect and fervency for Christ was genuine here when he was making that, that uh, request. I believe from all indications in Scripture that he probably wasn't a man of many words. But when he had something to say, you better watch out. 
He was strong, he was loyal, and passionate about his Lord. Doesn't surprise me that the only time that we ever find him mentioned without his brother John is in Acts chapter 12 at his martyrdom. When Herod decided to wipe out this new thing called Christianity, who did he go for? He went right for James, the first one. He had him beheaded, and then he proceeded to throw Peter in jail. Why James? Why'd they go after James? Probably because he was a thunderous voice for Christ. His zeal, fueled by the fire of the Holy Spirit, propelled him. He was a dangerous man to the enemy, right? Are you a dangerous man or a woman to the enemy? I heard this once in a, in a video. Is that you ought to be the kind of person that when you wake up in the morning, Satan looks at his demons and he says, uh-oh, he's awake. <laughs> but before he could die for Christ, James, he had to learn how to channel and temper his zeal the right way. Calling fire down on sinners is not the way. Jesus had to take him up short. Look at verses 55 and 56 again. But Jesus turned and rebuked them and said, you don't know what kind of spirit you're of. I didn't come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. At this point, James was not the guy that you want to send out as a missionary or call as a pastor. Okay, not yet. Because zeal without sensitivity is destructive. It will not lead people to Christ. We all have to learn that lesson. Some of us come on a little strong at times, like James. We're so enamored with Jesus, and we love him so much, and his kingdom, that we forget about the message of grace that he preached. I can relate to James. There are times when I become so irritated with the world system and with sin, both in myself and in others, that I lose my patience. And it's then that my sensitivity to the spiritual need of the situation becomes dull. Aren't there times when you just want to call fire down from heaven? When, when a good family is spiritually assaulted? Or someone is emotionally ripped apart by someone else? Or physically ravaged? Aren't there times when you just want to spit out fiery words? There have been times when I have. Spit them out. Let them loose. But then Jesus pulls me aside and he says something like this to my spirit. He says, Russ, is that my spirit in you? Is that my spirit speaking or yours? Remember what kind of spirit you're of. You're not here to destroy men's lives. You're here to help save them. So how many charbroiled Lives have been left in the wake of pastors and evangelists and missionaries and church people and cold-hearted, intolerant Christians who have loads and loads of zeal but zero sensitivity. See, loyalty to Christ and zeal for his kingdom is essential, no question about it, but it needs to be tempered by spiritual sensitivity. A lack of sensitivity will destroy a ministry because it destroys the object of ministry, which is people. Unfortunately, it happens way too often. 
Friends, zeal must be tempered by sensitivity. Not that we should ever condone sin. I'm not saying that. Don't ever condone sin. Not that we should compromise the truth. I'm not saying that. Don't ever compromise the truth. But the approach, folks, the approach often indicates whether Christ has really transformed our hearts or not. This, it's the dividing line between whether we are viewed by people as world-class sinners or as Christ-honoring saints. Jesus had to transform James and John's misguided zeal into something he could use constructively. Later on, we find evidence that he did that. In Acts chapter 12 and verse 2, after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit fell upon the disciples, we discover that James was willing to lay down his life for the cause of Christ rather than to take lives in defense of Christ. James became the first of the disciples to be martyred for Jesus. The weak points in the lives of James and John touch us personally, don't they? Most likely because they are our weaknesses as well. Our zeal must be tempered by his sensitivity because we, like they, too often fail to understand Jesus or his way or his truth or his life, which leads us into another area which we can learn from James and John as well, we must learn that we not only must we, must we monitor our approach to those far from Christ, but we must also maximize our attitude and minimize our arrogance. Here's the principle. Honor comes through humility. If misguided zeal is not your weakness, God's word's got another one for you. Maybe misplaced ambition is. Often the two go hand in hand. They accompany each other. Zealous people are usually motivated, goal-oriented people. It seems that these two were of that strain. Turn in your Bibles now to Mark chapter 10, if you would. Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 35. Mark 10, verse 35, James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. You know this text, right? And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant that we may sit one on your right and one on your left in your glory. Well, that's no small request, right? We want to be like you, Jesus. Actually, we want to be right there with you, side by side. But Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we're able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you shall drink. And you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. But to sit on my right or on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Hearing this, the ten began to feel indignant with James and John. Calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life of ransom for many. Let's look at this now. Unpack this a bit. Look at the request of the two in verses 35 to 37. An amazing request because they wanted a blank check signed by Jesus to fill in. 
they could fill it in. Matthew indicates that their mother approached him with the request, probably instigated by the sons. But Jesus reminds them of something in verses 38 to 40. Jesus reminds them very clearly that they haven't thought through their request, and maybe we should think it through as well, that in the kingdom of God, the price of glory is a cross. There is no scepter without suffering. This right here, this text, this is nothing more than selfish ambition. These two wanted the most prominent positions available next to the throne of Christ. And remember what got Christ that throne? Philippians chapter 2. Death on a cross. Humbling himself to the point of becoming a slave and experiencing death on a cross. Becoming a contagious Christian is going to cost you and I something. Are you prepared for whatever it may be? Jesus' question is a very hard one. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Are you able to experience what I experienced? Rejection, suffering, loneliness, abandonment by all of your friends, even by the Father. Are you able to endure the pain of what that glory will cost? And incredibly, they said yes. Of course, I don't believe that they understood what Jesus was asking any more than we do now. Yet they wanted that high place of recognition, selfish ambition. That's all it is. They probably thought, oh, we've done a lot by following you, Jesus. Don't we deserve a reward? You ever think that way? Jesus reminded James and John that before you wear the crown, you bear the cross. And then it causes resentment in the others. Verse 41. Don't be fooled, by the way, by their anger, like they had some righteous anger or something. As if they had it all together because they, like most of us, didn't get angry out of some righteous loyalty to Jesus. They got angry because they wanted the same spot. And here's the revelation of truth in verses 42 to 45. Jesus shot straight from the hip with them. The way up is down. True leaders serve. In the spiritual realm, it's called the glory of downward mobility, or as someone else termed it, descending into greatness. We all have a hard time with that one, don't we? Because the bottom line is, are we really willing to serve others with no fanfare, with no recognition whatsoever, even to our own hurt? Are we? man went to the doctor after weeks of symptoms. The doctor examined him carefully, then called the patient's wife into his office. The doctor says, your husband is suffering from a rare form of anemia. and Without treatment, he'll be dead in a few weeks. Good news is, it can be treated with proper nutrition. So you're going to need to get up every morning early and fix your husband a hot breakfast. Pancakes, bacon, eggs, the works. He'll need a home-cooked lunch every day and then old-fashioned meat and potato dinner every evening. And it would be very especially helpful if you could bake frequently. Cakes, pies, homemade bread. These are the things that will allow your husband to live. One more thing. His immune system is very weak as well, so it's important that your home be kept spotless at all times. Do you have any questions? The wife had none. Do you want to break the news or shall I ask the doctor? 
I will, the wife replied. With that, she walked into the exam room, and the husband, sensing the seriousness of his illness, asked her, it's bad, isn't it? She nodded, tears welling up in her eyes, and she said, he said, what's going to happen to me? And with a sob, she said, doctor says you're going to die. <laughs> this may be tongue-in-cheek. We do the same thing, don't we? Rather than do the hard work of serving others by bringing them the gospel, you know what we do? We opt instead to let them continue down the road to spiritual death. Because we don't want to put in the time, and especially if we don't get recognized for it. Remember, one of the key principles of effectively communicating the gospel is to put others first. We went over that. Serve them as Jesus would. James and John did eventually drink that cup Jesus spoke of, just as the rest of the disciples did. For James, it was early martyrdom. For John, it was a long life of loneliness, abandonment, and exile. All of them learned the hard truth that honor comes through humility. Through the examples of James and John, we learn that our zeal must be tempered by sensitivity. So monitor your approach. We recognize that honor comes through humility, so maintain a correct attitude, but there's more. Specifically, through the Apostle John, we discover that becoming contagious means we must model Christ's heart. And here's the principle. Our witness must be motivated by love, not law. It's interesting to note that one of the few places in the Gospels we find John's name mentioned alone is here in Mark 9.38 where, where he wants to stop people from casting demons out of, out of people. Just turn back a little bit to Mark 9, verse 38. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to prevent him because he was not following us. Seems that John may have been somewhat of an ultra-separatist. He wouldn't tolerate anyone outside of their little isolated discipleship group doing any ministry. Jesus had to hone that characteristic into something useful by teaching him that his uncompromising qualities as a witness for Christ had to be saturated in biblical tolerance and love for others. Notice I said biblical tolerance and love for others. Jesus isn't suggesting here sloppy, open-ended acceptance. We're not talking about the cheap grace of congeniality. John had an uncompromising sense of truth, but it needed to be balanced with Jesus' teaching on unconditional love. I believe that's why Jesus used John to write more about love, more about witness, and more about truth than any other New Testament writer. In the five books that are authored by John, he used the word love more than 80 times. He used the word witness almost 70 times. And he writes of truth also more than 80 times, far and away more than any other writer of the New Testament. It is through John, however, that we learn the most about Jesus' teaching on love. He was the only gospel writer who recorded that Jesus left them with a new commandment to love one another. 
The only gospel writer that recorded that in John 13, 34 and 35. It was John who gave us the most quoted scripture verse in evangelism, which is, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It was John who wrote of God as a God of love. As Phil read about this morning. That he loved his son, that he loves the world, that the only reason we can love is because we have first been loved by him. John wrote that. It was John who unveiled the fact that God is love and that if we are of God, we by definition are people who love others, 1 John chapter 4. John is the one who said that there is no fear in love. If you want a theology on biblical love, the first place you ought to turn is the writings of the apostle John. He had an incredible capacity for love which was balanced by an incredible commitment to truth. If we are to become contagious, those two things must come together. They go hand in hand because one without the other is an absolute disaster. Jesus taught John that our witness for Christ must be saturated with love. You know, philosopher Bertrand Russell in uh, Why I Am Not a Christian, wrote these words, quote, The intolerance that is spread over the world with the advent of Christianity is one of its most curious features, unquote. I'd replace curious in that quote with hideous. Granted, he was writing from an atheistic point of view, but it begs us to answer the question, Could he have a point? The world will never be one to Christ if we do not love as he loved. 1944, Life magazine published a photo essay of a fox in Holmes County, Ohio, a fox hunt. The foxes lived in the woods and ate mostly mice and crickets, but sometimes also chicken and quail. And this, the story explained, made the brave men of Holmes County angry because they wanted to kill the quail themselves. So one Saturday, about 600 men and women and their children got together, formed a big circle of five miles across, and they all carried sticks and started walking through the woods and fields, yelling and baying to frighten the foxes, young and old, out of their holes. Inside this diminishing circle, the foxes ran to and fro, tired and frightened. And sometimes a fox would, in its anger, dare to snarl back and it would be killed on the spot for its temerity. Sometimes one would stop in its anguish and try to lick the hand of its tormentor. It too would be killed on the spot. Sometimes, the photos showed, other foxes would stop and stay with their own wounded and dying. Finally, as the circle came closer and closer together, down to a few yards across... The remaining foxes went to the center and they laid down inside, not knowing what else to do. But the men and women knew what to do. They hit these dying wounded with their clubs until they were dead. And they showed their children how to do it too. 
Now, this is a true story. Life reported and photographed it. It happened for years in Holmes County, every single weekend. But today we cringe at such animal cruelty, and yet we have a fox hunt of our own, don't we? And you fill in the blank. You put the people groups or the people or whatever it is in that blank that we treat that way. And sadly, too many have wondered if they had any alternative but to go to the center of the circle and lie down and die. So where are you in that? Where am I in that? And then ask the question, where would Jesus be? See, as the sons and daughters of God, disciples of Jesus, we should be the most non-condemning people in the world. Yes, we are to judge with righteous judgment. Jesus told us to. But we do not condemn. We leave that to God because he's the only one that is qualified to do it. Brendan Manning wrote these words. He said, our way of being in the world is the way of tenderness. Everything else is illusion, misperception, or falsehood. The compassionate life is neither a sloppy goodwill toward the world nor the plague of what Robert Wicks calls chronic niceness. It does not insist that a widow become friendly with her husband's murderer. Nobody's saying that. It does not demand that we like everyone. It does not wink at sin and injustice. The way of tenderness avoids blind fanaticism. Instead, it seeks to see with penetrating clarity. The compassion of God in our hearts opens our eyes to the unique worth of each person, and we must love him in his sin as we were loved in ours. Only John recorded the story of Jesus' compassionate treatment of the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8. John understood the love Christ had for people. He was overwhelmed by that love. And, and I, I think he could hardly comprehend that he was part of it. That's why I think he referred to himself throughout his own gospel as the disciple whom Jesus loved. At least five different times. Are you that awestruck by God's grace? Did you ever think of yourself that way? The one who Jesus loved? Or how about the guy down the street that loves Jesus? You think that he's the one that Jesus loves? Or she? John's thinking was transformed by Jesus. And if we are to be infectious, so must ours be. Our witness for Christ must be saturated in love. However, John did not forget the final balancing aspect, and nor can we, that we must maintain the balance. Maintain the balance. Here's the principle. Love must be directed by truth. As I said, John's commitment to truth was uncompromising. He firmly believed in unity. He recorded Christ's prayer for it, but he never never, never demanded unity at the expense of truth. John 17, 17, Jesus' high priestly prayer. Jesus prayed, sanctify them in the truth. 
Thy word is truth. We must be, as Mary Chandler McIntyre penned it, quote, tough-minded as well as tender-hearted, that we be in each other's faces as well as cherished in each other's hearts. Okay? Interesting balance. John's love was controlled by God's truth. First, second, and third John clearly testify to that fact. Can't miss it. Everywhere, his exhortations to love are counterbalanced by the commands to obey the truth. There is no gray area with John when it comes to truth. It's either black or white. In John's theology, love directed by truth is the substance of Christianity. When love is directed by truth, this is what it reflects in us. It gives us spiritual authenticity. First John chapter 5. Turn your Bibles to 1 John chapter 5 if you, if you are there, or if you have your Bibles. Just a couple of verses. Verse 3. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. 2 John, verses 5 and 6. Now I ask you, lady, not as though I was write, were writing to you a new commandment, but the one which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love that we walk according to his commandments. Now, it's okay to say, love one another, but if you leave it right there and you don't follow up with the next verse, you've got something that God's not defining. Love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandment. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning that you should walk in it. John chapter 14, John's gospel. John chapter 14 and verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. You know what John is speaking about, our pattern of life. Is it characterized by love for God and others? Henry preached about that last week. It's two commandments, right? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second commandment is like it, right? What is... Love your neighbor as yourself. If you don't do the first, which is the first, the greatest commandment, you're not going to do the second well. If you don't love God, but you attempt to love your neighbor, well, it might be nice. It's not going to be according to God's love. It also gives us personal credibility when we balance truth, love and truth. 1 John, again, verse one, uh, chapter 1, verse 8. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. For if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. We, when we're giving the gospel to other people need to be credible and we need to admit the fact that we're sinners too. I think all of us can identify with the words of Mae West. She said, I used to be snow white, but I drifted. Well, yeah, we all drift, don't we? And no one will ever be spiritually snow white on this side of heaven. Let's admit it, shall we? We sin just like unbelievers do sometimes. But don't excuse it, confess it, and change it. That's what John writes about. That's the truth part of it. 
And it also gives us relational sincerity. One of the greatest sins in the contemporary church is that it's become professional instead of relational. We become numbers instead of real people. And in 1 John chapter 3, in verse 16, John writes, We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and what? Say it. Truth. You don't lay down your life for a corporation. You lay it down for people. You lay it down for a person. Jesus died for us individually. He forgives us individually. He cares for us individually. Brendan Manning calls that the practice of indiscriminate compassion. We love one another as a rose offers its fragrance or a lamp its light. It doesn't withhold it from bad people and give it only to good people. It graces all with the gift. Such is the command of Jesus to love one another as we love ourselves, right? Jesus was so confident in John's compassionate heart that he entrusted his mother into John's care. Then John also says that balancing this truth and love gives us doctrinal integrity. In John chapter 8, John chapter 8 and verses 31 and 32, so Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine and you will know the truth. And the truth will make you free. It's the truth that makes us free. Indiscriminate compassion by no means advocates uncritical acceptance of any heresy. It's the truth that sets us free. You call sin, sin. You call error, error. But you speak the truth in love. And then it gives us finally a spiritual identity in John chapter 13 and verses 34 and 35. We've already referred to this, but Jesus left us with this commandment. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you love also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This is what's going to identify us as Christ's disciples. The lives of James and John show us that when the truth of Jesus prevails, lives are definitely transformed. They were transformed into effective fishers of men, these two brothers, James and John, and the lessons they learned will aid us in our own discipleship. Number one, zeal must be tempered by sensitivity. Number two, honor comes through humility. Number three, our witness must be saturated with love. And number four, love must be directed by truth. So to close, after reading Colleen Hackett's letter to you at the beginning of this message, I get the impression that those are some of the same lessons that Jesus worked out in her life. If you're discouraged because you're still dealing with some of these areas unsuccessfully, let Colleen's daughter Heather's words sink into your heart and soul and mind. Although she was only three and a half years old, when she went to be with Jesus, her words are prophetic. 
prophetically significant. Jesus is painting a picture of me and he isn't finished yet. That's the view of a true disciple. It's the character of one who would become contagious. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this series showing us how we can become contagious Christians. Thank you for this message about James and John showing us the balancing point that we need to balance truth and love together. That we can't be too overzealous without coupling that with love. That we must be humble. And we do not have selfish ambition or demand places of honor. Father, impress these principles in our minds and in our hearts, Lord God, as we go into the world and make disciples under the Spirit's guidance. Use these things, Lord God, to bring glory to your name, for that is the ultimate goal of all of this. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.